following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. The sermon this morning is the third in a sermon series entitled Life in Christ. One of the amazing aspects of the scriptures is the way in which they are immediately relevant to events in today's world. And we will see that again this morning. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Two weeks ago, on a Sunday, which in the Orthodox Church is traditionally called Forgiveness Sunday, Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow, delivered a sermon in which he addressed the invasion of Ukraine. It would have been wonderful if he had drawn upon the teaching of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to critique the moral depravity of the Russian invasion. But he did not do that. Instead, he suggested that the central moral issue in the world today is a decadence in the West, and that this decadence is epitomized in the gay pride parade. He actually singled out the gay pride parade. He went on to say, that if LGBTQ behavior is accepted, it will mean the end of civilization. Ukraine has had annual pride parades advocating for LGBTQ rights in recent years, most every year, much to Carol's chagrin. Therefore, Carol declared, the war is a struggle that has metaphysical significance. Russians who are fighting and who support the war are taking a stand, he said, on the side of God. You can have whatever view you wish of biblical passages dealing with human sexuality. I've written a book on the subject, preached a whole sermon series on the theme, so I will not be talking specifically along that line here. But surely something is radically amiss when a church leader justifies a brutal invasion by suggesting it is a kind of holy war against the acceptance of LGBTQ persons. When I read Carol's sermon, I was absolutely aghast, especially because it came from a guy who's the head of one of the great historic churches in the world, the Russian Orthodox Church. I thought of how Jesus, seeing falsehood in top religious leaders in his day, charged them with being blind guides. I also thought of that passage we just heard from 1 John, which made the notable statement that many antichrists have come. Now that was written about 50 years after the resurrection, which implies that many more antichrists have come since then. I've talked in previous sermons about the concept of the antichrist, which unfortunately has been woefully distorted in many contemporary end times speculations. In the Bible, there is no place where there is a concept of a single end times antichrist. The word antichrist is completely absent from the book of Revelation. It is present only in the letters of John, where John says, not that the antichrist will come, 
but that many antichrists have come. An antichrist, in John's writing, is someone who acts as though he or she represents Christ, but who actually teaches things contrary to the spirit of Christ. Patriarch Carroll has put himself in the running to fulfill that description. Most significantly, John goes on to point out what the central feature will be of people who are authentically in the spirit of Christ. They will show love for others. Patriarch Carroll's sermon serves, therefore, as a striking contemporary illustration of how even religious people can radically misperceive what Jesus is about and what following Jesus should be about. Of course, he's not the only one to have ever misunderstood or misconstrued what Jesus is about. That has been an issue through the centuries ever since New Testament days. And it is an issue that is at the heart of the gospel readings that we heard this morning a few moments ago from the Gospel of Mark. These passages each contain an element that many readers of the Bible find perplexing. In each case, Jesus commanded the people involved not to tell anyone who he was or what he had done. In the first story we heard, Jesus displayed miraculous power as he raised the daughter of Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, from death back into life. But, the account concludes, he strictly ordered them that no one should know this. Later, Jesus healed a man who was deaf and who had an impediment in his speech. At the conclusion of the miracle, we are told, Jesus ordered them to tell no one. Finally, we heard the story of the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, where in response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Whereupon, we are told, Jesus strictly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. This kind of episode occurs repeatedly in the Gospels. We only heard just three of multiple examples. Biblical scholars have named this phenomenon the messianic secret, as it seems in these stories that Jesus is trying to keep his messianic identity a secret. Whenever Jesus performs a miracle that would move the crowds to recognize that he is the Messiah, he tells them to keep quiet about it. Whenever someone like Peter actually proclaims out loud that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus tells them to keep a lid on it. Why does Jesus do this? A careful reading of the gospel shows that the central issue was that people were inclined to misunderstand what kind of Messiah Jesus was. In the first century in Palestine, people broadly expected a triumphant Messiah, one who would come with the power of God and who would use that power to obliterate their enemies. Whenever Jesus performed a healing miracle, his actual reasons for doing so were two. First, he was moved by love to reach out with saving help to those in need. Secondly, the demonstration of his power would be a sign for all future generations that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But in the first century setting in Palestine, 
his demonstrations of power could easily move people to think that here was that power-wielding Messiah that they were expecting, a miracle worker who had come to blast away their problems and who likewise could blast away their enemies. In a similar fashion, whenever people explicitly recognized and said that Jesus was the Messiah, they were recognizing the truth. But it was very likely that they were misunderstanding what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. This is quite plain in the story of Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah. After Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus began to speak of how he would have to suffer and die. And Peter, the Gospel reports, rebuked him. Suffering was not what Peter was imagining that the Messiah would be doing. He did not yet understand what kind of Messiah Jesus was. In this light, we can see why Jesus would discourage people from running around saying, we found the Messiah. He knew that the crowds hearing that the Messiah had come would very likely have wrong expectations and would completely misunderstand what Jesus had actually come to do. Significantly, there's one story in the Gospels where Jesus performed a healing and then he told the person to go out and spread the news. This occurred when Jesus reached out to a man who at the time was described as demon-possessed and who was living among the tombs. Jesus healed that man with such a commotion that a nearby herd of pigs stampeded off a cliff. You may remember that story. After the healing, Jesus said to the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Why would Jesus tell this man to spread the news when he told everybody else to be quiet? The difference in this story is that it occurs in Gentile territory. That's pretty obvious, the people have pigs. Because the people were Gentiles and not Jews, that meant they did not have preconceived notions about the Messiah and they were not in such danger, therefore, of misunderstanding what Jesus was about. Today, people continue to misunderstand or misconstrue Jesus in ways similar to how people were thinking in the first century. People in Judea and Galilee wanted a savior who would take their side against their enemies. And today, people love to see Jesus as the one who blesses their national or political cause. But Jesus told people to love their enemies, and he continually embraced people that others were wanting to reject. Many people also wanted a savior who could rescue them from whatever personal troubles they were facing at the moment. Jesus did rescue people from many troubles with, with amazing actions, but he then downplayed those miracles and thus communicated that he is not primarily to be seen as a wonder worker whose job it is to zap away people's immediate problems and pains. Instead, he laid out his central calling as Messiah in these terms that we heard. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man 
that is the Messiah, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Suffering, rejection, death. That was not the picture that people in Judea or Galilee had of the Messiah. Many years ago when I was in seminary at Duke, I worked for a summer as the assistant pastor of a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was the 1970s, a very conservative, buttoned-up era in the South. One bright, hot summer day, I set out to visit one of my parishioners at the hospital. This hospital had a particular parking area that was designated for doctors, hospital staff, and clergy. Clergy were to simply identify themselves at the gate, which was always staffed, in order to park there. So I came tooling up to the gate in my little rusty economy car, 23 years old, wearing sunglasses, with a full black beard and long windblown hair. Way more hair than I have today. I leaned out the car window and said to the woman in the booth, clergy. She said, nah. No way are you a minister. I did not fit her picture of what a minister should look like. Actually, I probably looked rather much like Jesus in the picture of Jesus that was surely hanging in her church. But Jesus did not look like what she thought a minister should look like. She had her own ideas. She did finally let me park, but only because there was another car coming up behind me. In first century Judea and Galilee, Jesus did not fit the picture that people had of the Messiah. Jesus thus chose to keep his messianic identity a secret for a time in order not to be identified with that false picture. He knew that his followers would only fully understand after the crucifixion and resurrection. Then they would realize what Jesus was talking about when he said, if any would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus' followers would, perce would perceive that he is a Messiah of self-sacrificial love. Whenever people misunderstand what Jesus is about, they generally at the same time are misunderstanding what our real human problem is. So often people want to think that the problem is those other people, and Jesus is here to bring us the victory. Or the problem is whatever is troubling me at the moment, and Jesus is here to make it quickly go away. But the problem is much deeper. Our human problem is our alienation from God, what the Bible calls sin, which is at the root of all our greatest human agonies and which leads us to our alienation from one another. Jesus answers our fundamental problem on the cross as he takes the full weight of human sin and evil upon himself in order to reconcile us with God. Jesus thus answers our human problem 
with self-sacrificial love. And he leads us then in harmony with God to join him in living out that kind of love in the world. The key then for us is not only to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, but to recognize what kind of Messiah he is. When people misunderstand or misconstrue Jesus, they typically are wanting to cast him as a me-focused savior, one who should back up my agenda and my prejudices and my wishes. But Jesus is a God-focused savior, one who would bring us into fellowship with God, turning us away from self-concern to join finally in God's purposes and God's love for the world. When we are truly following Jesus, we will enter into that way of love. As it is said in the first letter of John, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Let us pray. Eternal God, into our broken world, you came through Jesus Christ with wondrous, saving love. Inspire us, Lord, to open our hearts today to how you would pour that love into us, healing us, lifting us up out of our brokenness, Lord, into fellowship with you, that we might live in the fullness of your spirit, that we might know ourselves, O oh God, to be sustained by your love and your grace forever. We might be filled with that love that you pour so freely upon us. And move us then, Lord, in fellowship with you to reach out with that kind of love for the world. Lord, we reach out to persons close to us who are in times of particular need. We remember those who are sick, praying especially this morning for Nancy Wirtz. We remember those who are mourning, and we lift up especially today the family and friends of Dale Onderak, commending him, Lord, into your everlasting arms. We reach out to Persons in the broader church, lifting up our fellow United Methodists at the Shreve United Methodist Church. Lead us, Lord, as we know ourselves to be your disciples, as we follow you and know that you are here to guide us each day. And Lord, as we follow in your grace, we do reach out to the broader world, a world so full of brokenness, so full of division and hate. Lord, we pray that your spirit would especially be with the people of Ukraine, we're experiencing such hatred and such evil and wrong in these days. We pray that they might find encouragement in your presence and that they might know, O oh Lord, that you indeed are with them. We pray also, O oh Lord, for the people of Russia, people who've been terribly misled, people who are being told such falsehoods. We pray, Lord, your spirit would be at work among them, people who are being drawn into a terrible future. Lord, we ask that human hearts and minds might be opened afresh to recognize how you are calling us, calling us to live in love, calling us to build a world of peace, calling us to know your forgiveness, your mercy, and your, your grace. 
Lead us, Lord, today as we would seek to live in that grace and be instruments of it in our world. God, this, this morning, as we indeed hear your calling to us to follow as your disciples, to know ourselves, to be embraced as your people, and then to join with you in reaching out with your love to all. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.